We've been going through a series at Cornerstone called Playing with Fire. Um, it's based in Proverbs, and we've been learning how to kind of stay away from areas where we might get burned, where we could get hurt. Um, they've addressed topics like busyness, marriage, infidelity, greed, being single, and in the next couple of weeks, today and next week, we're going to hear about parenting and sexual immorality. Each of these topics comes with some do's and don'ts. Uh, do protect your time so you don't get hurry sickness, right? You're not irritable and feeling overworked all the time. Don't fantasize about someone that isn't your husband or entertain thoughts of infidelity. Do look to God for your happiness and your fulfillment, not the world or your relationship. Don't let greed put you in debt. Do stay away from pornography and sexual sin. Now, some call these do's and don'ts rules, right? But I like to think of them as guardrails. Hello. <laughs> like a baby gate around the fireplace to keep a little one from getting too close and getting burned. They protect us from hurting ourselves and hurting others. A guardrail will keep you out of falling into the Grand Canyon, right? You can't just run with the free abandon toward the edge of the Grand Canyon. They have a guardrail there. There was actually, just in the news, there are these uh, volcanic craters in Italy. I don't know if anybody heard about this. There's guardrails all over to protect them. And an 11-year-old boy decided I don't want to obey the guardrail. I don't think I need the guardrail. This is, I'm going to just go ahead and go around it. I'm sure it's not necessary. And uh, he fell into a crater. His parents went to save him. And all three of them passed away. There's a guardrail there for a reason. And that's what these are. That's what we've been talking about. Christ followers have a different set of guidelines, a different set of priorities than the rest of the world when it comes to how we live our lives. I need a little more room to walk around. I'm like this, and I'm like, I just, I move a lot. They can seem strict. They can seem unfair, um, where others might find relief in drugs and alcohol or a one-night stand that feels good. Well, we're instructed to find our comfort and our relief in God alone right? Where others may cheat or backstab to get ahead, we're pledged to honesty and loyalty. Where someone may hate based on race or religion, we are called to love all of humanity as made in God's image. We're expected to be Christ-like because his love and his spirit are in us. Integrity, love, chastity, Morality, compassion, generosity. When we are these things, when we exhibit these things, we become a light to the world that's very dark. Jesus addressed these types of ethical guidelines in one of his most well-known sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, which we often just think of the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, but it goes on to a lot more for another two and a half chapters. Much of his message 
is exhorting his followers on how they need to live in the world as his disciples. She Reads Truth said this, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' longest recorded sermon and arguably his most well-known, Jesus holds the lives and religion of his hearers up to the light of God's law. It's as if he takes a spiritual x-ray of their actions, their hearts, their motives and rituals, as well as their pain, longings, confusion, and suffering. Reading this sermon should do the same to ours, meaning reading this should cause us to examine our own hearts and our own actions and our own motives. So this morning, I'm going to skim through parts of this sermon, and then I'm going to land on two particular verses. In chapter 5, Jesus makes it clear that his followers are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's why there's salt on some of your tables. It's to bring flavor. It's to make things taste good. It's a preservative. Like, there's so many things salt is. And then there's candles. If we turned all the lights off in here, you'd see those lights. That's us in a dark world. We would be those little candles that people would go, I see light over here. That's what we're called to be. We're called to be that light, a beacon of hope. You can find hope over here. Not to be hidden in darkness, but put up on a stand. He said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father that's in heaven. So people will see the good things you do and give credit to God or look to him because we're a representation of him. Then he goes on to give ethical instructions where he likens anger to murder. You've heard it said, don't murder, but I say if you're even angry with somebody, you've, you know, that's murder. It's like, uh-oh. Um, he says, looking at a man with lustful intent is already, is just, it's adultery in our hearts. We always put that on men that men fantasize, but ladies, we can do the same thing. That's just reality. If you're with your husband and you're thinking about Ryan Gosling, like, hey, girl, you know, <laughs> that's adultery. If you're single and thinking a little too much about Ryan Gosling in certain ways, hey, girl, that's, you gotta be, you gotta be careful. Or you can't, if there's any sort of lust for a married man, that's adultery. Jesus, Jesus radically says, if your right eye makes you stumble, just tear it out. Get rid of it. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it away from you. That's like, Jesus, really? Like, is that taking it a little bit too far? Because seriously, I would have no appendages and <laughs> be blind, you know? Like, if we, were, if, we, if we literally did that, we'd be a mess. Thank you for forgiveness and grace from Jesus. That was intense, but that's how strongly Jesus feels about sin. He has like a zero tolerance policy when it comes to sin. Like he wants it out of our lives for our own good because it blocks us from our fellowship with him. You might need to cut off a relationship with a boyfriend or a friend because they're always leading you into sin or into toxic thinking. You might need to get rid of all the alcohol in your house. So me personally, I love a glass of red wine, and I don't have a problem with wine. Scripture talks about making the heart glad. I'm fine with it making your heart glad. I don't have a problem with it. But 
If I go a few days and it's been hard, the kids have been hard, something is stressful, everything's hard, and I'm having a glass or two every night, can you just get me something to drink? Can I just have a glass of wine? And I'm sending pictures like this to my sister, like, you know, the gif where they're like, cheers. You know, which I have, or there's one where it's a giant glass. I need to kind of assess where I'm at, right? Because then it goes from a happy heart to a drunk heart. And then we have a whole nother conversation. And, you know, where am I looking for my refreshment? Where am I looking to wind down? Am I going to go to do to my father like Jesus did? Or do I sit on the couch with a glass or two of wine to help me refresh myself? I have to kind of assess. So, in the words of Ice Cube from the 1990s, check yourself before you wreck yourself. (laughs) Be willing to self-assess and look at yourself. And I go, Darren, I have been drinking wine like for the last five nights. Like something is off here. Like I need to handle my stress in a more healthy way. And so it's just about... You know, is there something that's causing you to stumble? Is there something where it's like the hand that needs to be cut off? Then just assess it and get rid of it. And Jesus says, turn the other cheek if someone slaps you. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you or are mean to you. In chapter 6, he says, give secretly. Pray secretly. Fast secretly. Be different. Don't draw attention to yourself for what you're doing. And he says to forgive. He says, if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. Christians don't have the luxury of holding a grudge. We just aren't allowed to do that, even though the reality is having a grudge can feel pretty awesome because you are, you're kind of the, you have the power, right? Because usually when you're holding a grudge, you fully believe you're in the right and the other person was wrong and you can hold that over them and it can feel good. Now, when my, when my husband read this, I said, often with a grudge, we were in the right, and he wrote like, ha, 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 with a green pen, like, no, really, I'm, when you're holding a grudge against me, I'm still usually right, but <laughs> I don't really have anything to say about that. So <laughs> chapter seven is where we find our text. There's a point of transition here where Jesus moves from teaching ethics to offering warnings and challenges. In the remainder of the sermon, Jesus presents four contrasts, two ways, two trees, two claims, and two foundations. And today we're going to focus on the two ways. Chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And by the way, we didn't know if we should go with bagel and Bible or bagel and Bibles, But I like the idea of bagel and Bibles because I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles. So it's not bagels and my Bible, but it's bagels and our Bibles because I love doing this. I love getting into the word. Verse 13, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. I love how this verse is often illustrated. It's like, who's going to go running and throwing themselves into flames when they see 
oh, I just have to veer right and I can go to this big hand coming out of the sky, right? Nobody's going to do that. Same with that one. They can see where they need to go and they're all jumping into the flames. That's not how it looks, right? The road to destruction often looks a lot like the road to heaven because Satan likes to make it look really appealing. He might even put heaven over it, but you're, you're not going there. So that's really not how it is. People on the wide road or when you're on that path, it doesn't look like you aren't surrounded with flames and like, I'm going to hang out here. That's really, not how it, that's really not how it works. The metaphor of a gate leading to heaven or hell is not uncommon in Jewish literature. Um, and it refers to the difficulty and severity of the discipleship that the people of God are called to. Yes, it's talking about heaven and hell, and Jesus is the narrow gate. But when we look at the context of this sermon and all of the ethical teaching, it's also the radical character of discipleship that's being addressed here. So first, let's look at the wide gate and the broad way. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. The Greek word for wide is broad, and the Greek word for broad is spacious. So the way is spacious. There's so much room to move, right? And even though the metaphors are spatial, they point to the easiness and comfort of those who go that way. No demands to be met. No discipline to acquire. No ethical rules to obey. It doesn't really require much of anyone who travels it. There's room to keep your selfish ambition. You can keep your pride. You can keep your sin. You can hold on to that baggage of unforgiveness. There's plenty of room. You do whatever you want, whenever you want. It's all take and no give. As a disciple, it means you kind of live your life however you want and have all these freedoms to do whatever you want. But then when you take a survey, you write Christian, which implies you're a disciple of Christ. Jesus says that many will enter through this gate. And why wouldn't that be true? Because, I mean, it's just easy. It's easy. It costs nothing. And if you want to go through that gate, there's going to be plenty of company because people don't like rules. They don't like do's and don'ts. They don't like boundaries. They don't like to be told no, right? Who does, really? But it starts as kids. Ask any two-year-old that wanted a toy in the checkout line at Target who screams their face off in the drive all the way home and you film it because it's ridiculous that they're screaming over this thing, but they don't want to be told no. I've heard people say, churches have too many rules. Just Christianity has too many rules. Well, you know, so do parents. And it's to protect their kids. I love my kids so much, and I have rules in place to keep them safe. They may not understand them all the time, but it's for their own good. Christianity has these ethical boundaries for safety and salvation. The narrow gate. The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. The word for small is stenos, which is narrow. But listen to what the Greek word is for the word narrow. It's the Greek word thlebo. Thlebo, it means to crowd, confined, compressed, pressed, throng, like when the people would all press against Jesus, a throng, afflict and trouble. 
Again, the metaphors here are spatial, this time pointing to the genuine difficulty of the way of being on the narrow road. It should be difficult. There's not a lot of space to move around. It's confined. You don't have a lot of space to do whatever you want. The narrow gate is harder to get through. It's a tight squeeze, like when you're putting on your skinny jeans. Like, right after you get out of the shower. And then it's like two weeks after Christmas. And so they're like stuck on your, you know, calves. Have you ever tried to put them on after the shower? It's like the water turns into glue and it's like, uh, uh, it's impossible. I'm just saying. It's a tight squeeze. Or the aisle in an airplane when you have your big old bag. Have you ever hit someone in the head? Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. You know, it's narrow. You can't take a lot through it, right? You can't take your baggage when you're trying to walk through something narrow. That's a whole other sermon, right? This small gate is very different than the wide gate. It requires a laying down of everything to pass through it. In verse 14, the narrow The word narrow comes from a related word that means tribulation. And so it's possible that it's expected that when you're on the narrow road, you should expect some trouble, maybe some persecution, maybe some opposition from being on the narrow road, especially from your friends on the wide road, right? Ladies, if you were on the narrow road, you should feel confined and have some trouble. Those are kind of markers looking at this text. You should have some discomfort. If you don't feel confined at all in your actions, if you don't feel out of place or cramped at all in this world, then that might be a problem because there should be some confining on this narrow road. And if you do whatever you want, whenever you want, to whomever you want, you might be on the wrong road. And again, I'm talking about the rigors of discipleship, not hell and heaven. I'm talking about the ethical roads. On the narrow road, you are agreeing to live by Jesus' ethical and moral teachings and to be a light and to live differently than everyone else. So back to what I was talking about at the beginning. As followers of Christ, we have a different set of guidelines. We love when others hate. Okay? We give when others hoard. We respect the guardrails put up around sin that our loving God put in place to keep us safe. We stay on the narrow road, clear of the lava pits, because they know, we know they're going to burn and we're going to get hurt. We don't play with fire because we know we'll get burned. So now that we've established that Jesus has called us to this narrow, confined road, and it's a difficult road, what does that mean for all of us this morning here at BMB? It means we need each other because it's hard. We can't do this alone because it's hard. 
So how many of you were at the women's event last weekend? That's awesome. Because what we were trying to say was, we need to make sure we're linking arms with each other. We need to make sure we're standing together, that we see each other as a sisterhood. Because being a disciple of Jesus can be difficult. Standing up for what's right and what's honorable can be difficult. When done right, we can be the biggest cheerleaders for each other. We can come together as sisters for accountability, encouragement, and strength. When everyone else hops over to the wide road, we need sisters to help us stay anchored in the right path. Someone to say, uh, don't take that detour. I know it looks like you're going to get there faster, but I took it in 1993, and it took me like four years to get to where I was trying to go, so it is not faster. I can, seriously, I can be on a narrow, straight road one way and still get lost. Like, is anyone here directionally challenged? <laughs> right? Like, you can still get lost on a narrow, straight road where you can only go one way. I went to a conference with a girlfriend of mine years ago, and it wasn't even that far away, but the blue dot was never where we thought we were, and we started counting how many U-turns we made. <laughs> Eleven. <laughs> to get to where we were going, like... I, I don't even know if it was, it was like Vacaville or something. 11 U-turns <laughs> to get to where we were going. We need each other, or at least Siri, you know. <laughs> I'm kidding. She will not take the place of an accountability partner. You're like, hey, Siri, stop me if I go too far. No, that's not how it works. We need those mature in the faith that can help us not get lost or to take those detours. Who's been to Disneyland? I'm going this week. <laughs> I, my flight leaves tonight, actually. My husband's packing. Yes. I'm all, gotta go. But I gotta clean the van. Um, so, the Autopia ride. What makes this ride safe for this little, like, seven-year-old girl? There's a bumper. There's a center guide rail, right? doesn't go 80 miles an hour. Um, when Disneyland first opened, the ride didn't have that rail, and it didn't have those bumpers. I think I have a picture of that, too. It was just a big road, right? There was so much freedom. You could do whatever you wanted, right? Nobody making you stop or stay in the road. Um, and I read that a couple weeks after the grand opening, the entire fleet of those little fiberglass cars were damaged or destroyed. <laughs> because people needed some boundaries. They, just, they would crash into each other. They were just crazy. So they had to be refit with bumpers, designed to withstand crash impacts every few minutes. <laughs> right? I read, during its first decade, Autopia traffic was a bit too free for its own good, and the center guide rail, which keeps the cars on the roadway, was added in 1965. I wish the narrow road came with one of those center guide rails. So every time you're like, oh, uh, oh, he's so cute, oh. <laughs> you guys, I didn't get married till 33, so I know about the he's so cute detour. <laughs> if it's not, he loves Jesus so much, then that's not a good detour. That's not a safe one. I really want to please Jesus. 
I really want to be a good and faithful servant. And I mess up all the time like anybody else because we're human. But I wish that there was a guard, like a rail there, so I could never veer too far from how he wants me to live. Who was here for Ryan Leake's message a couple weeks ago, the one on singleness? It was probably one of the best messages I've ever heard on singleness. Like, and I heard a lot not getting married till 33. <laughs> there was a lot of single messages in there. It was solid. It was so good. And he talked about having a referee in our lives. Someone that's objective. Someone to speak truth. Call foul. And I loved how he put it. He said, a good friend who has eyes on who you really are. The person that can pull out the, the best that God has for you. So I'm going to put on a prop here. I looked up some referee signals <clears throat> for wrestling. Now, let me explain this prop. If your husband likes football, um, I bought this to get his attention. <laughs> you don't normally wear it over clothes if you catch my drift. Thank you. Never thought I would wear this outside, but here we are, ladies. Okay, so I looked up some referee signals for wrestling, right? So let's say you have this friend, and you get to her house, and she, you find out she's telling you she's having like three glasses of wine every night before bed for the last two weeks. Over here. So you say, potentially dangerous. That's a potentially dangerous habit you're getting into, all right? You have a friend that's considering moving in with her boyfriend. Illegal holding. <laughs> there is going to be some illegal holding going on if she moves in with that boy, right? Illegal holding. You have a friend that, you, you know, somebody's repented, somebody's trying to find some grace and forgiveness, and she's like, nope. I'm never letting go of that. I'm never going to forgive that person. Unsportsmanlike conduct. <laughs> Seriously, I would love to have this kind of power. You know, you're talking to somebody, you stand up. Unsportsmanlike conduct. And then you have a friend, you're at the outlets, and she's in like the Kate Spade store, and she's like, oh my gosh, I love this $800 purse. And you know that she like owes her mama money, and she owes, you know, she's in debt, and she has credit card payments, and she still owes her rent. And then you can pull out my personal favorite, you're out of control. <laughs> you are having no control. And I don't know why a wrestling referee would do like a hummingbird because it's just not very tough. And you do notice, watch the difference. If I don't tighten my arms, they jiggle. But watch this. <laughs> it's all about how you tighten those muscles. I, a hummingbird. So next time you're like with your friend and you're at Target and she's like, I really need this new, you know, $200 comforter set. You're like, no control. Like, you got to control your money, sister, you know. Let's pull those out. <laughs> okay. So you might be thinking, you know, well, hey, isn't that kind of judging if I'm kind of calling stuff out? I like to say calling up, not calling out. Isn't that kind of um, judging someone? If I'm thinking, she shouldn't be doing that. She's playing with fire. What about thou shalt not judge, right? 
So we'll look at that a minute. Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged. Well, this command was never meant to be taken as a prohibition of using all judgment or discernment in right and wrong. Um, in fact, in verse 6, the disciples are set, it's, they're told, you need to judge whether someone's a false prophet. Or, or no, and actually, they need to judge whether someone's a dog or a swine. Same thing. And in verse 15, they have to judge if a person is a false prophet by looking at their fruit. You're going to know them by their fruit, and then you can discern that is a false prophet. There are actually many verses throughout Scripture that condone a righteous or upright judgment. In John 7, 24, the same word judge is used here. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with a righteous judgment. And it's actually the same Greek word in Matthew 7. And it's like opinion or how, how you see something. It's, it's different, but it needs to be righteous. Matthew 7, 1 through 5 is talking about judging without hypocrisy. That's the point. So how do you make the call as a referee? How do you hold a friend accountable? And so I'm going to give you some tips on that. Number one, if it's not implied, ask permission to speak into their life. Sometimes it's a good friend or you see something and you can say, you know what, I've been watching you and uh, this is worrying me a little bit, right? This, this concerns me a little bit. But make sure you have permission. You just can't go up to anybody and start, thus saith the Lord, that is sin. You know, <laughs> you won't be received very well. <laughs> Number two, be humble. Because we're all in the same boat and we've all made the same mistakes. No condemnation. No shame. When I was a secret smoker for 10 years, my best friend, I would quit and then I'd start and I'd eat all the Doritos so she couldn't smell it, but she could always smell it. She never condemned me. She never made me feel ashamed, even though she knew I really wanted to quit and I felt the Lord told me to quit. She never condemned me. She just kept pulling me up. She just kept pulling me up. You got this, my cheerleader. Romans 2 verse 1 says, Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which way... For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things, right? Because we all fall. I know a 20-year-old whose behavior has driven me crazy. She's a Christian, but her behavior has just been crazy. And I would be, it'd be easy for me to go, oh my gosh, she says she's a Christian and she's doing all this. But when I was 20 years old, I, I grew up in a Christian home, and I would tell you I was Christian, but I was living in San Diego, and I was using my dad's company gas card to put gas on other people's cars so they'd give me cash so I could buy cigarettes and a new outfit for the club, or I'd buy whatever groceries I could at the mini mart on his gas card so I could take the money they gave me for food to buy cigarettes or a new outfit for money at the club. I was, I was just a mess. So I can't, I can't judge. We can't, we can't put someone down for where they're at. We just try to lift them up. I wish that I had someone to call me up at that time, to remind me of who I was as a follower of Christ and to help me get to a better way. But I purposefully didn't surround myself with those people. I surrounded myself with people that wanted to go clubbing and smoke and do all that stuff too, so then I didn't have to worry about anybody it's pulling me up. We need to have girlfriends around us. 
Number three, be discreet. This is not something you share with your prayer circle. I've been watching Cheryl, and I think she is starting to have a gambling problem. Let's pray for her. You know, no, you go talk to Cheryl, and you say, Cheryl, you've said you've lost $1,000 on, you know, that gambling app. Let's, maybe we need to talk about that. You're discreet. Number four, be honest about your own struggles. You never want to come across high and mighty. The reality is we all have had, are currently in, or will have struggles. Number five, pray for them. Either when you're with them or just on your own, especially before you go talk to them, pray for them. Because the Holy Spirit, it says the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So let the Holy Spirit have his work in them, okay? And number six, examine yourself. Examine yourself. The judgment of faults is to begin with oneself. Be self-aware. Examine your life. You can't be like yelling at your girl from the wide road. You know, hey, you better stop that. And it's like you're on the wide road. Like you need to kind of look at yourself. You can't call out a slight shortcoming or a speck while you're ignoring the big issue in your life. I would be a hypocrite if I was doing the same sin or worse and then telling you not to do it. That's the speck versus the log that's talked about. If I was having a secret adulterous relationship and I was on you for flirting with a married man, I'd be a hypocrite. I can't, that's not right. Verse five in chapter seven says, take your log out and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your sister's eye. So make sure you're dealing with your stuff or that you're open and transparent about it. If we can realize if we were all transparent about our victories and our struggles, we would be so supportive and receptive of walking this out and helping each other to be who Christ has called each of us individually to be. Be radical about removing sin from your own life until you feel somewhat confined, like you want to do something, but you have to tell yourself no. Right? Assess your life, acknowledge where you see stuff, repent of that, and then move on in forgiveness and grace and just keep moving up. So how to respond when a trusted friend is making that attempt to hold you accountable? It's really uncomfortable, just so you know. Try not to get defensive. If you trust them and you know they love you, Try not to get defensive. Number two, with honesty, be open. Don't deny it and lie. Just be open because the sooner you can walk through it, if that friend's there to try to pull you up and into a good place, allow them to do that. And number three, assess, like I've said, assess what are they saying, acknowledge it if it's there, repent before the Lord, Lord, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And then you move on with his forgiveness and his Holy Spirit to help you make different decisions next time. So if we're all safe places, there's more sharing of struggles, there's more reaching out, there's more linking arms, there's more pulling up from out of the mud. I personally love to be challenged um, and and push to be everything that I should be as a follower of Christ. Um, being called out is very uncomfortable, but I kind of love it 
when, a, when to be like, oh, I need to be better. I love to find where I can get rid of stuff that's impeding my relationship with the Lord. If it comes from someone I trust, I will push through the discomfort and the irritation, to be honest, and accept the rebuke. Because sometimes it is, you can be rebuked by a friend. That is okay, and it's a good thing, and you're lucky if you have a friend that feels the freedom to come in and do that with if it's right. My husband once, I had gone to coffee with someone and heard all this stuff about a third person, and it had completely affected how I saw that third person. And I was talking about this third person to my husband, and he said, you just let someone else's gossip affect how you saw that person. And I was like, no, I was so irritated. Like, how dare, we were just coffee talking. That wasn't gossip, we were just talking. And I was mad that he called me out, right? I trust him, but he called me out. So about an hour later, you know, I was just like, oh Lord, I totally let gossip affect how I see that person and it's wrong and I just repented before the Lord because I knew that I had been wrong and he had helped me to see that. This series at Cornerstone uh, with, uh, that's playing with fire, they're just calling us to be greater, calling us to be who God's called us to be. I have an important side note here. We are not meant to be referees for non-believers. We are not the world's referees, okay? Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13 in the message. He says this, the message is so funny. I wrote you in my earlier letter that you shouldn't make yourselves at home among the sexually promiscuous. I didn't mean that you should have nothing at all to do with outsiders of that sort or with crooks, whether blue or white collar, or with spiritual phonies for that matter. You'd have to leave the world entirely to do that. But I am saying that you shouldn't act as if everything's just fine when a friend who claims to be a Christian is promiscuous or crooked, is flip with God or rude to friends, gets drunk or becomes greedy and predatory. You can't just go along with this treating it as acceptable behavior. I'm not responsible for what the outsiders do, but don't we have some responsibility for those within our community of believers? God decides on the outsiders, but we need to decide when our brothers and sisters are out of line. That's not, if they're not a part of God's family, they, we, are, we can't expect them to be a disciple of Jesus. It's the disciples of Jesus that have these guide rails and the narrow road that we are called to adhere to. And I'll tell you, verse 12 in the NASB, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? So I'm going to end with what is likely the most important part of this discussion. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' call to righteousness I think this might, some of this is from uh, She Reads Truth also. Jesus' call to righteousness occurs in the context of the reality of grace. Yes, we are called to the narrow road, and our lifestyle and daily decisions should reflect that we are on a narrow, confined road as a disciple of Jesus. But God's mercy is here when we fall. His Holy Spirit is in us when we feel weak, and his forgiveness is there every time when we screw up. That's why Jesus came. 
He knows what comes out of our hearts. He knows that we're dust. He is there just pouring out his forgiveness and mercy and grace. On our own, we're gonna fall short every time. From mature pastor to new believer, as hard as we try, we will like be texting and driving and head right over into the wide road, right? In our thoughts or in our behavior. We cannot walk this narrow road without him and without his spirit, and we cannot do it without each other. So again, we're better together. We're better side by side with Jesus, and we're better side by side with each other. I read this. The prognosis is that we are broken beyond self-repair, but the remedy is real. Jesus came to fulfill every inch of the law on our behalf, As we read the Sermon on the Mount, we might feel the sting of Jesus' rebuke of sin and self, but we will also hear the invitation to new life. Jesus has already paid for any detour you've ever taken, you're currently on, or you will ever take. And no matter what road you find yourself on this morning, he loves you, and he is for you, and he has not left you, and he's pouring out his grace on you, And he's working in you to become all that he has destined you to be. I'm going to pray. Jesus, sometimes it's so much nicer to hear the I am the good shepherd verses and the all the just love one another and love is of God and all that. But sometimes, Lord, we, we find ourselves in texts where you're telling us you're calling us to a, to, a, to a higher place. You're calling us to a narrow and difficult road as your disciple. And I just pray for each and every woman here that your Holy Spirit will do a work in their hearts beyond what I've said. You know where we're all at. We want to be pleasing to you. We want to be useful by you. We want to be light in a dark world. We want to be salt. We want people to look at us and know immediately she's a follower of Christ. I can tell by her actions. I can tell she's treating people. She must love Jesus. We want to be those lights, and it's going to be hard, and we need your help, and we're going to mess up, but help us, Holy Spirit, to be the daughters of God that we need to be to have our arms around a hurting world and one another. I just bless your name, Jesus. I love you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, a thousand chances. Thank you for what you've done for us, Lord. We love you. Amen.